2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalbeth When you found the person who you thought could be your partner for life, when did you bring up the topic of kids? Coming up, a marriage and family therapist will join us as we talk about the conversations couples have when one or both decide they don't want children. Today, where we live, childlessness in America. When did you know you wanted a life without children? Some women say they've known since they were little girls. Others make the decision once they're on a particular career path or after they learn of a certain health condition. Now, once you tell people you don't plan on having kids, how do they respond? With surprise, disapproval, skepticism? We'll speak with a woman about her experience when she decided to pursue sterilization. Before we hear Kristen Richter's story, we wanted to know how common childlessness is in America. In 2015, a Pew Research Center report on U.S. demographics found childlessness among women ages 40 to 44 was at its lowest point in a decade. To learn, to learn more now on the phone with us is Gretchen Livingston, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. Gretchen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, We should note that when I mentioned that data on childlessness, uh, when women were surveyed from ages 40 to 44, it doesn't really break down uh, the women who may have chosen not to have children as well as women who may
3: not have had a choice. They weren't able to have kids. That's absolutely right, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, There has been some data that has tried to look at that that has surveyed women in that age range who've never had children, and those survey results suggest that about half of these women say you know, they, they made a conscious choice to not have children, and about half suggest that it wasn't necessarily a choice on their part to not have children. You know, and that could have meant they didn't find the right partner, they had health issues, just as you were saying at the beginning of the show.
2: When we look at percentages,
3: how many women are we talking about in America? Well, uh, now about 15% of women in their childbearing years having never had a baby, um, and that number is up from the mid-1970s when the number was around 10%, and that's the earliest point that we have good data on this. So, you know, that's a, a notable increase in childlessness across that time period, but it's interesting to note childlessness over the last 10 years or so has actually been on the decline, so it popped out at around 20% in the early to mid-2000s.
2: Now what happened around the the recession of
3: 2008? Good question. So we know that economic shocks like that recession definitely affect people's decisions about having children at least in the near term. And that's some of what we see or what we hear when we hear stories of record low fertility. Um, you know you see quite a few stories about that in the news but it's important to keep in mind that the recession is gonna or any kind of economic shock might affect data for certain years And it's important to note that what I'm looking at is a little different measure it's not looking at fertility at one point in time it's actually looking basically it's lifetime fertility so it's not asking did you have a child in 2010 it's saying did you ever have a child from the time you were 15 to 45? And why that uh, that uh, endpoint at 45? Well, um, there's a couple reasons. I mean, honestly, even though we hear more and more about older women having babies, and of course with reproductive technology, that is possible for a lot of women, the fact is that I, I want to say it's something like 0.1% of births occur to women who are really in their mid-40s or older. It's a very, very small percent, so typically the cutoff is around 40 to 44 when we're looking at data, although just recently um, the Census Bureau has started collecting data for older women as it does become a little more common, but still overall it's, the numbers are very small.
2: Uh, what can you tell us, Gretchen, about the women uh, who are uh, not having uh, children, or the ones who uh, may have uh, delayed uh, motherhood but now are uh, looking to, to have children? What can we what do we can we figure out from the data of who these women are in terms of their educational backgrounds and and whatnot?
3: Sure, uh, you know something that's interesting is. Um I think we think of childless women as being predominantly highly educated. And that is true, but that trend is changing a little bit. Over the past 20 years, the biggest declines in childlessness have been among the most educated women, which I think is quite striking. So if we look back to even just the mid-90s, which was not that long ago, um, about 35 percent of women with a PhD or professional degree at the end of their childbearing years had never had a baby. That number's down to 20%. So to kind of put that in another framework, that means about 80% of women with an MD or a professional degree do have babies now, which that's, that's a big change.
2: Also, um, women of color, are they more or less likely to have children in, in 2017?
3: Interesting. Um, Our data shows that generally non-Hispanic white women are the most likely to be childless. Um, That continues to be the case. That's been fairly constant for a while. So around 17% of these women don't have babies, and um, Hispanic women are the most likely to become moms. About 90% do, or in other words, about 10% of Hispanic women at the end of their childbearing years have never had a baby.
2: And how has this changed from the 70s?
3: I don't have data back to the 70s on that, unfortunately, but I can say over the past 20 years or so, those numbers have been pretty stable, actually.
2: This is Where We Live. On the phone with me is Gretchen Livingston, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. As we learn more about childlessness in America, if you've made the choice uh, to not have kids, we want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Gretchen, I understand uh, Pew is going to be releasing some new data later this week about lifetime fertility among U.S. women. What can you tell us? Any changes in how you've been able to look at the data in previous years to what's coming out later this week.
3: Yes, we're going to revisit a lot of the same stuff we're talking about right here, but we're also going to look a bit more into the timing of births as far as who's delaying births, who's not delaying births, some stuff like that, which I think is really interesting. Uh, Today we're talking about
2: um, individuals who choose uh, to not have children, but there's also changes in perceptions of what makes a family and how many children... uh, is the right number for people.
3: That's right. That's right. Um, you know, on the one hand, one hand it's important to keep in mind um and I think maybe some it's easy to lose sight of the fact that not so long ago childlessness was not necessarily acceptable um and some research suggests that may be part of the reason um that the rates of childlessness have gone up is that become, it's become more socially acceptable to be childless, whereas even, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was much less so for a woman to um, not have birth and still be accepted. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, also as far as children, you know, again, not that long ago in the mid-70s, a lot of women were having four children still or had four children at some point in their lives. And now, of course, the norm is more likely two children. Mm-hmm. So, well,
2: we'll look forward to that that new report coming out later this week. I wanna again thank Gretchen Livingston, a senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. Thanks, Kristen, or thanks, for Gretchen, for your time. We're gonna now bring into the conversation Kristen Richter. Uh, this is a, a woman who has a self-described voice for the child-free choice. She's also a writer. Uh, Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, so what, at what point did you know that you didn't want children?
1: This is something that I've always understood about myself to be true. Even when I was a child, um, thinking about my future, um, what it might look like, even though I wasn't intentionally making these decisions, it the vision of it was always um, either by myself or without children. It was never an urge I had. I never had that maternal uh, draw to have children. And then as I got older, it was further reinforced by more logical, more tangible things like um, hereditary issues, health, um, ecological responsibility, economic responsibility. So it started out as just more of a Something I I knew to be true about myself, and was just reinforced by uh, things I learned about the world and uh, the decisions that we hear from from people when they make that decision later in life,
3: like uh, health decisions.
2: So you mentioned um, you know health uh, decisions, but when you're looking at uh, the world at large, you're thinking about overpopulation and whether you want to add to that that
1: problem. Yes, uh, there at the last time I did research on it, there were over 400,000 children in the foster care system in America at any given time, Um, and I've always thought that if I was going to care for a child, raise a child, have those resources and the ability to share that, the desire to share that, it was never in my desire to add to that population, but to assist a child that was already here.
2: So when you um, you knew from an early age, like you said, uh, that you knew you didn't want children, what about um, how your family may or may not have influenced you, and and what was their reaction?
1: Um, very very neutral. Um, I think it was just something that was so so known. Uh, there was hardly a, a a significant coming out moment about this. This was just something that was always sort of understood about myself, and if I was I remember being asked about it as a child, or more, I remember being um, commented too about you know when I get married, when I when I have kids, and just thinking that was such a strange comment to hear, you know even as a you know a six or seven year old, sort of where the assumption was that I was going to have children, but it was certainly assumed. And I just remember thinking that that was so strange. Um, and I remember telling people very young, like, oh, I I won't be doing that. Um, the younger I was, of course, that was very just dis- that was dismissed as, you know, something children say. And of course you will. You want to. Everybody does. Um, and I let it go. But I just knew in my head uh, that, that that assumption was so strange and it just didn't fit with anything that I that I valued or felt about myself as I got older and was able to make more logical arguments and logical decisions about uh, about my reproduction, my relationships, how I defined family, how I wanted to form a family, um, and what that meant for me, and going forward with uh, making the permanent decision for sterilization. Uh, nobody in my close circle was surprised or had negative reactions. Uh, really the only negative reactions were from people not involved at all, from strangers, which I always thought was very, very funny. Um, Anyone in my life was really not shocked at all.
2: That's interesting that you said it's strangers that have uh, more of an adverse reaction to your decision uh, to not uh, have children. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you... um, Underwent sterilization. When did you make that decision? And you know, some listening may think that's a very permanent. uh, Mm -hmm. There's nothing that you can do to reverse that. So, uh, why go that route?
1: Uh, There were there were many contributions that came to that decision. Some of them were simply just uh, the logistics of the time and place I was in my life. But it was always something sort of in the back of my head that I knew I would eventually do. I didn't ever want to leave that to chance. I believe in every child, a wanted child. If there was ever to, if I was, you know, to ever become pregnant, have a child, there are the standards I would set for myself to raise that child are, are so high. Um, I believe in strong families, strong households, uh, the best opportunities for children. If I, and if I wasn't able to to provide that, I wouldn't feel... Um that I was that I was ready to do so. Um, so I didn't want to leave anything to chance. And when it came time to uh, actually start petitioning for the surgery, um, part of it was I wanted to uh, get off of hormonal birth control, and some of it was just more uh, just the logistics of where I was in my life. I was moving out of state. my health care was about to change. Um, we'd had issues with my the birth control I was on, and it really uh, came time to it. It was something I knew I always was going to do, and where I was in my life just pushed the timeline forward, and I was comfortable with that. Now you were in your
2: early 20s when you were looking for a doctor to perform a tubal ligation. What was the reaction that you received in your early 20s looking for this procedure?
1: I knew going into this, because of the research I had done beforehand, that this was going to be an uphill battle, no matter what age it was. Um, The research I had done showed that uh, anyone from their 20s to their 40s were routinely denied this surgery, um, typically in in pretty disrespectful fashion. Um, So I went in prepared for that. Uh, I knew that there was going to be multiple consultations, um, multiple providers involved. Um, So I think that that changed the tone of the conversation when I went in compared to someone who may not have expected that and went in with the expectation of I can go in with my records and my request and get this approved. Um, I went in sort of with the... Intention of knowing, I was going to have to argue my way uh, into the approval, and it was exactly as I expected, and exactly as the researches that I had done um, told me it would be. I was, um, it was, it was very condescending. Um, I was, um, it felt very. Uh, a lot of it felt like an interrogation. A lot of it was telling me what i what telling me about myself what i would regret what was going to happen you know if i changed partners because i emphasize that i didn't want children neither does my partner and i was told that well when you change partners or if you change partners what happens when they want a child um sort of that uh reinforcing that expectation that to be a good partner to be a a worthy partner, you have to, um, you know, provide provide children and sort of disregard my own personal values there. So that and, was sort of difficult just to reinforce mm-hmm. my own my own values and how important they were.
2: Kristen, how many doctors did you have to see before you were able uh, to have that medical procedure done?
1: I actually don't remember. It was always in the uh, same. Um, center. It was a teaching hospital, the same center. And that was just because of my um, where I was in my life with my uh, healthcare options. But I know that I, I probably cycled through every provider that they had, at least with consultations. Um, but I know that from the research I did, it, it was it is completely uh, commonplace for a woman to exhaust her financial resources. And every medical provider, OBGYN, in her uh, availability, in her travelable radius, uh, trying them all and being denied by them all before she gives up. Um, So I was, my particular situation, I had to stay within that one medical center, but I do believe I saw every one of their um, OBGYN providers
2: uh your your story became very public when you decided to do a tedx talk on your decision to be uh child free um you you say in that talk that even when you were signing the consent forms the doctor was there shaking his head um saying that you would probably change your mind
1: how did that make you feel um this particular provider was very very difficult to work with and it 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 made me sad that this was my experience um and also sad that like I said, I was limited in my uh, healthcare and financial resources. I didn't have the privilege of, you know, to say I'm being disrespected here. I don't like the care that I'm receiving here. I can go elsewhere. Um, so I was sort of uh, stuck with this particular provider, and um, he, the entire time, and like I mentioned, I went to multiple consultations. Um, they they rescheduled me for for multiple consultations. I just I voluntarily went back to restate my case multiple times and often with this individual and yeah that's just an, one example of of sort of how he was treating the situation even once it was approved by the surgeon himself this doctor who was sort of overseeing my whole case um, had no problem speaking to me like a child had no problem telling me um, refuting anything I was uh, declaring or saying about myself about the research I had done making, you know, well-argued declarative statements of these are my values. This is what the research shows. This is, these are reasons why I need this in my life, why this will help my life, why this will help my, um, my goals, my lifestyle, the way that I value family, even things that shouldn't be refutable, their statements about myself. He had no problem telling me, uh, With great certainty you will regret this this uh, this is a bad decision Um, you don't know what you want you know you you don't know what's best for you and he told me that there was no one who was going to approve this because of a concept called medical autonomy which he felt the need to uh, define for me which is that providers are going to act how they uh, feel is in your best interest regardless of what the patient is uh, saying or valuing. That's interesting. That was difficult
2: to hear. That's interesting that you bring that up. We're going to, after the break, uh, be speaking with a doctor and finding out about um, um, laws here in Connecticut. Uh, on the phone with me again is Kristen Richter. Uh, she's a woman who's chosen to be uh, child-free. Uh, she decided at a uh, in her early 20s that because she never wanted to be a mother, she actually had tubal ligation. Uh, today we're talking about childlessness in America. Kristen's going to stick around with us after the break. We're going to also bring in uh, another story from a Connecticut native who's going to tell us about um, her decisions. And we want to hear your thoughts, too. Um, how did your family, your friends react to your decision to not have children? You can join the conversation today, 860 275 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll take your calls right after the break. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Today we're talking about women who choose to not have children. Later this week, Pew Research Center will release a new report on motherhood in America, including changes in family size and details on the number of women who have delayed motherhood. Our guest, Kristen Richter, is a woman who knew from an early age that she didn't want kids. In her TEDx talk on her choice to be child-free, Kristen details how difficult it was for her to find a doctor who would agree to perform a tubal ligation, a medical procedure that would sterilize her. Now, have you made the choice to not have kids? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now in studio is Dr. Christopher Morosky, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UConn Health. Welcome to the show.
4: Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me.
2: We were hearing a little bit of of Kristen's story. Uh, In her 20s, she was looking uh, for a doctor, I believe, when she lived in Texas to perform tubal ligations. Uh, When a woman is looking for this procedure, how old does she have to be in Connecticut?
4: Right. First, let me just say that it was a little difficult for me to listen to Kristen's story. Um, That is uh, really compelling, and I think it's something that we should definitely be talking about um, as as a whole country. Um, In Connecticut, um, we have a certain law for women on our um, state health insurance, Medicaid, and it's called Husky A here. um, And they're required to be 21 years of age to be able to have a sterilization procedure. Um, That's not necessarily true for women with private insurance.
2: Now, um, you've been a doctor for some time, also associate professor at UConn Health. Is this something that women approach you uh, to do?
4: Oh, sure. Yeah. I've had this conversation with uh, many women and their families uh, discussing tubal ligation um, across all different age groups um, and for women who've either had children or not had children before.
2: Uh, young young patients?
4: Sure. Yep. I've uh, spoken to women at, at 20, 20 years of age, going on 21 years of age, who've made the decision to have tubal ligation. Um, and we begin to have a conversation um, about their decision. Um, and I think that what you heard from Kristen was um, what I like to say is uh, hopefully a uh, old-fashioned historical approach of paternalistic um, care where the physician basically tells you um, what's right for you um, rather than a more contemporary approach where we engage the patient um, in her decision-making process.
2: So this is non-directive counseling. So what do you talk about if someone comes to you and says, I'm looking to have this procedure done?
4: Sure. Yeah. So non-directive counseling is a really interesting concept where we as physicians believe that uh, patients are experts in their own lives. They're experts in their own health care. And for women, um, they're experts in their own reproductive health care decision-making. So what we are obligated to as physicians is to, again, engage them in this conversation and provide them information and then sort of walk with them along as they make that decision. Um, This often comes down to uh, simple risks and benefits of different things, but the overall conversation really focuses on, one, the permanence of tubal ligation, that this is a permanent decision that they'll be making, two, we let them know that there's some risk for the procedure like we would talk about with any procedures, although we do know that these procedures are relatively safe compared to all the surgeries that we do. Um, And then we also want to let them know that there are non-permanent contraceptive options that are uh, very reliable, as reliable as uh, tubal ligation, um, and are reversible.
2: Such as IUDs?
4: Such as IUDs or um, implants. Yeah, absolutely. Those um, carry pretty much the same uh, effectiveness as tubal ligation, um, yet are reversible. Now, they do carry side effects because both of them, uh, well, two, two of the types have hormones, um, one does not. Um, some of them have uh, side effects, systemic side effects. Some of them have menstrual side effects. Um, and for these, rem- for these reasons, as well as possibly carrying a foreign body around in your, inside your body, um, these are reasons that women may choose not to select these forms of contraception and then maybe once again to continue the conversation about permanent sterilization.
2: Now, if uh, the patient in front of you um, has a male partner, do you ever bring up the alternative of vasectomy?
4: Absolutely. I'm a big fan of vasectomy. Um, We know very well that vasectomy is probably even better, more efficacious than uh, female tubal sterilization. Not by much, but like maybe uh, 0.1% or so. But it's at least as good, if not better. It's also a lot cheaper, and it's probably safer when we compare the two procedures sort of head-to-head.
2: Uh, Kristen Richter, you're on the phone with us. Uh, what's your reaction to what Dr. Morosky is saying? And when you were getting counseled, uh, was vasectomy brought up um, if you had a male partner and that being an option for you?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I, I love what I'm hearing about the sort of new approach of the non-directive counseling. It's certainly not what I experienced and in my research, not what is the norm and which seemed to be a systemic problem. But I, I love to hear that that's the direction that hopefully the, um, that healthcare is going um, because I agree I'm uh, trained in mental health therapy and I agree that the in, only the individual can be the expert in themselves. So when it came to vasectomy, I don't remember if it was brought up by my provider, but I do remember that at the time it was something that both my partner and I had intended to do. We both wanted Uh, sterilization. um, And it was more about our individual health. So it was something that we intended for uh, him to get eventually. It just wasn't the right time. Um, But I don't remember if it was brought up by my doctor or not. But I certainly wanted my own body taken care of my own health care, taken care of independent of any other partner.
2: Now, um, you mentioned, Dr. Morosky, that this is covered by insurance, but what is the cost if it if you didn't have insurance?
4: Oh, well, um, yeah, just to clarify, it's covered by most insurances. That also will be sort of state by state um, in terms of whether or not a, a female uh, sterilization procedure is covered. Um, but when you look at the overall cost of things, so um, for women, we're talking about a surgical procedure where they do usually need to be asleep under anesthesia or have some amount of anesthesia um, administered, that requires monitoring, that requires time in the operating room. And then there's also all the surgical equipment that comes with uh, the procedure. Um, so when you put it all together, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm going to give you a range is probably somewhere between three and ten thousand dollars if you ever had to pay for this um, out of pocket, which is um, a very costly procedure.
2: You can join the conversation today Um, if you've chosen to not have children. We're curious about a reaction from your family, friends, and how you respond. Again, our number, 860-275-7266. Paula's calling from Woodbury. Paula, go ahead. Uh, What's your comment or question?
5: Hi there. Uh, My comment is uh, Kristen's story just resonates with me so much because it's such a parallel to to my own life. I chose to get uh, surgical sterilization in my early 20s. And I didn't get any kind of pushback from my provider because he'd been treating me for so long and actually he had delivered me. So, you know, from from birth, until when I needed, you know, an OBGYN, so he understood, and we had had conversations, and I didn't get pushback from the provider. I also didn't get pushback from my family, like my parents and people in my very close inner circle, because they knew me, and they knew what my core values were, and that this was something that was just never, you know, coded into my DNA, to be a parent, to be a mom, I just—it was something I never ever wanted. The pushback came from people who thought they knew me, and and would make remarks like, "You're going to regret it. Who's going to take care of you when you're older?" You know, arguments that I always had an answer for. You know, aside from saying it's not really your business, but mm-hmm. th- there's no guarantee in life that even if you do have a child, that you're you're ensuring someone's going to take care of you when you're older. So, you know, I could. Kick a hole in that argument all day long, but it's such a personal decision to to make that decision. And when other people start to chime in with you know their reasons that they want to you know fill in your dance card with, it just doesn't make any sense. But it, I'm so happy to hear that you know medical providers are are taking the time to to listen to the patient, and and whether it's a unilateral decision, like Kristen said, this is what she wanted for herself. Or whether it's a bilateral decision where both partners go in and say, you know, these are your two options. I mean, it's just, it's very important that the patient be involved in this decision-making process and not be told by by a physician, this is so wrong. This is the worst thing you could do and, you know, all that kind of jargon that goes with that. Mm
2: Well, Paula, thank you uh, again for your call. I wanted to get another perspective. Uh, This is a Connecticut native, Ebony Murphy Root. Uh, She's also opted out of motherhood. She joins us by phone. Ebony, welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning. So tell us about uh, your decisions behind not wanting children and what's been the reaction from people you know?
0: Um, My dad had two child-free sisters when I was growing up and a third who did have children. And I remember Realizing uh, sometime around kindergarten that that was an option that you did not have to be a parent when you grew up, and I remember something clicked. Like, oh, that might be something uh, for me, and and uh, I've stayed there uh, pretty steadily. You know, I'm 35, so most of my same-age peers have kids. You know, even the people who held out for grad school or for the perfect job now they're joining the the parenting tribe. So uh, that's where I am now.
2: Now, you're married. Uh, tell us about some of the conversations, uh, if you don't mind, that you had uh, with your, your partner about um, your decision and, and what he thought and what his decision was as well. I
0: think really early on, you know, when we first started dating, we talked about kids and he was like, I don't really want kids. And I, was like, I don't either. So it was it was it was perfect right from the beginning. We were both on the same page about that. Uh, he's got two nieces. I have a niece. And two nephews, and we're really happy with that role uh, in our families. We're the auntie and uncle.
2: Uh, you mentioned that you're in your mid-thirties. Um, you know, a lot of times people in their thirties are uh, getting married, um, having children. I understand there's lots of uh, groups on social media for both women and men who've chosen not to have children. Uh, have you been involved in those to, to find that that uh, uh, that support out there for your decision? Sure, I found some really cool. Uh, social uh, online communities one
0: is the child free choice and another is families of two uh, specific specifically for married and coupled uh, people, and you'll find the full range of of people, just people who are pretty sure they don't want to be parents, people who are waffling. There are definitely the confirmed, I don't want to be anywhere around kids people, and you find the whole range. And there are actually a lot of really cool podcasts these days, too. One of my friends, um, Katara Kendrick, who uh, is an English teacher in Shanghai, is starting a podcast, so she's a black American woman from New Orleans living in Shanghai doing a podcast about being child-free. I mean, it's kind of incredible.
2: That's interesting. And in groups, especially for women of color?
0: For sure. For sure. Women of color in their 20s, women of color up to their 50s, different areas of the country. And then there are groups I've seen for Jewish women, Asian American women, uh, Latinas, because it can certainly be a different experience depending on your ethnic background.
2: There have been uh, studies done uh, where I'm looking at one out of uh, Indiana uh, University where uh, she surveyed a professor, a psychology professor, surveyed her students about their reactions uh, uh, to uh, a couple uh, that, that don't have kids. And it's interesting, um, the findings are there's just moral outrage that people have, even if they don't know someone, when they, they hear that someone doesn't have children, there's a judgment. Did you ever feel that from people that you run into, Ebony? And then I'll ask Kristen the same.
0: For sure. Some of my friends, we call it child-free bingo because everybody says the same things. They say, you're going to regret it. Who's going to take care of you when you're old? You're probably a terrible person. And, you know, it's just, you go bing, bing, bing. I've heard these all before. But there's always been, you know, some percentage of women in society who didn't have kids where they, where they were the nuns or the teachers or the spinster aunts. We've always been here. And what I say is that parenthood should be a volunteer army. You know, you don't need to recruit. We don't need the Pope or Fox and Friends to scold us. People are still going to have kids and and be around kids and, and take part in children's lives.
2: Uh, Kristen Richter, uh, after you did that TEDx talk, what has been the response?
1: Um Overwhelmingly positive, and I was uh, actually expecting um, so much more negative reaction. Of course, there's always going to be uh, the trolls on the internet. Uh, I've heard that uh, I specifically uh, and and my ilk are the downfall of society, which is uh, very funny. Um, but I'm I've been ignoring most of that because my my inbox has been. Um, overwhelmingly flooded with responses from all over the world uh, telling me that uh, that my story resonated with them, that they had the exact thing happen to them. I had a woman come up to me right after the talk when I, when I did it live at the uh, Buell Theater in Denver, Colorado, and she hugged me and she says, I'm 55 years old, and it's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, your story is, is my story since I was 20, um, and it's never changed. She says, you know, I'm, I'm almost sixteen and I still hear these same things. Um, so a lot of people say, well, this is just because of your age, and I have people tell me all the time uh, that that's not the case. Uh, but people are coming out of the woodwork to tell me that my story affirmed them, that Maybe I was the first voice that has ever told them that they were sufficient, that they were enough just as they were, and that having children, that becoming a parent wasn't a requirement for them to be worthy.
2: Uh, Dr. Morosky, you're in studio with us. Uh, We're getting a a comment on Facebook um, where uh, a listener says that um, she has, her friends and family have also experienced where uh, they've run into OBGYN doctors that have advised against having more children or may disapprove of the method of family planning we utilize. So it's interesting to see uh, both sides and what's the best approach in counseling a patient before you.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I really hope that the future of uh, those providers that um, offer reproductive health care to their patients can maybe perhaps think about moving away from our old paternalistic way of um, providing and teaching and telling patients what's right for them and rather move to a more patient-centered conversation where we engage them. And like the first caller that called in, her physician delivered her and knew her, and I think that if physicians um, allow themselves to take the time to personally get to know their patients, they can begin to engage them in these difficult conversations and walk the path with them so that the patient can come to the decision that's right for her and for her family.
2: Um, Ebony murphy Root, again, a former Connecticut resident, uh, also a child-free woman. Um, You talk about this with your husband, often. um, Kristen was someone who decided the decision that was right for her was tubal ligation. Um, How do you approach that when you look at alternatives and what's best for you?
0: Um, at this point, I've had really good experiences with my contraception. I have an IUD, not too many side effects, so that's not something that's really on the table. Um, I've never really even had a cavity, so voluntary surgery seems like a big deal to me. But if that changed, I would certainly um, put that option on the table. And, and then just as we were discussing this, the vasectomy did come up. So, uh, you know, that's something that we're going to continue to have a conversation about as well.
2: We're getting uh, some tweets from listeners. Christina writes, sometimes the choice to not have a child can be a point of privilege, reflecting access to affordable birth control, safe abortions, et cetera. And uh, Christy writes, both my spouse and I were on the same child-free page throughout our marriage, choosing to focus on our relationship exclusively. Uh, She writes, now that he's gone, I'm grateful that I don't have grieving children to care for. Uh, Thanks for your tweets. Uh, Keep them coming. You can also join the conversation on where we live as we talk about the choice to remain child-free. Um, coming up next, we're going to speak to a uh, marriage and family therapist about the questions and conversations couples should have. I want to thank Ebony Murphy Root for joining us uh, for our conversation today. Also, Dr. Christopher Morosky, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UConn Health. Thanks, both of you. Uh, Kristen's going to stay stick around with us, and you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Coming up Thursday, following reports of multiple staff abusing a patient at Connecticut's Maximum Security Psychiatric Unit. Now news of an order splitting Whiting Forensic from Connecticut Valley Hospital in Middletown. On the next Where We Live, what does this change mean for the safety of patients? We'll get an update, and we want to hear from you, too. That's Thursday. Now, today, we've been talking about women who don't want to have children. Now, if you're dating someone, when is the right time to talk about it? Our guest, Kristen Richter, gave a TEDx talk on her children choice to remain child-free. In it, she says, it's first date conversation. What do you think? How did you bring up that kid's conversation to the person you wanted to commit to? It's 275 Joining the conversation now on the phone, Julie Leifeld, Associate Professor of Marriage and Family Therapy at Southern Connecticut State University, also Director of the University's Family Therapy Clinic. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So when is the right time to bring up the, the question about kids when you're dating?
6: Well, probably not in the first date, although we really advocate being as honest as possible to create a good relationship. If we're talking about a serious monogamous relationship, hopefully you've already had that conversation. I think most of my colleagues and myself would say the earlier the better because you're building trust, right, to avoid feeling betrayed later on as relationships go forward. Honesty is sort of the best policy,
2: I mentioned you're a therapist. Is it common when you're seeing clients for one partner to change his or her mind?
6: Um, maybe not common, but my, I would say that it's frequent. So what we run into now with online dating, which is kind of an interesting change in our field, is that people put up profiles and say one thing, and then you get to know them, and it's quite different. So there's that. And then there's just the lifespan changes. Over time, people can change their mind, right? So you've built a relationship with expectations, and then the experience can be very different if your partner changes their mind. So it is not something that can't be worked through, but it's one of those things that can be called an unsolvable problem. I want a child, you don't. What do we do if we've already uh, committed to ourselves uh, to move through life in a relationship, whether we're married or not.
2: Kristen, you're on the phone with us. Uh, uh, Julie recommends it may not be first-date conversation, but you feel like it should be.
1: Uh, little of both. Um, at least in my case, this was just something that was uh, so core to my identity, something that was uh, so solid in what I knew about myself. Most people in my life knew about it already, so anybody I was going to be Uh, entering into a relationship with, probably already knew this to be true. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think it's just, um, it seems to be one of those uh, almost taboo subjects because it is so written into the social narrative that it's an expectation. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it sort of has fallen in with the whole uh, politics and religion don't discuss at the dinner table. And I think it should just be so much more of a conversation about um, philosophy and values.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, we're hearing from another listener on uh, Nicole from Stanford uh, you agree for state conversation
1: I do
7: definitely agree for state conversation when you're a confident woman especially that's I think the challenge
2: there and so what was yeah. your experience Nicole my experience is
7: I met my now husband uh, we've been dating six years I was about uh, 32 years old and I knew from a very young age I didn't want children but as a natural woman you go through the process is it because I'm scared is it because social society tell me I have to is it because of I'm Italian my mother's going to insist all that type <laughs> of stuff and then I get to the point where I'm a real adult I've been to some therapy through other processes of enabling and realize it's really just something I don't want I definitely see myself either adopting or taking on a guardianship because there's so many kids that have no one so when I met my husband it was one of the first things I said in our first dates and he said okay but as he got to know me and we developed a relationship, I think he saw maybe I'd be a great mother. How could she not want kids? He's a very Catholic man. And that process came up for us quite often uh, just to make sure I'm like, listen, this is something I definitely don't want. You don't have to marry me or go forward. If this is something you feel you need, we can go on with each other for as long as we want. And when you feel you need it, just go. You know, that's I was never quite attached to anyone or anything. But I think our process of growth and Honesty was something that kept us together um, and the partnership that we've built. So that's how we got on with each other. And now we just got married in October and we've been together six years.
2: Well, thank you, Nicole, for your call. Uh, Julie Leifeld, again, Associate Professor of Marriage and Family Therapy at Southern Connecticut State University. React to, to Nicole's story.
6: Well, I really feel that that's the health, that sounds like a really healthy, resilient couple with clarity in the beginning. You know, you are setting up your communication strategies with those are that those are the underpinnings of a healthy relationship, regardless of what you're talking about, whether it's children or where you want to live or who wants to work where, you know, these are things that come up in couplehood. And if you don't set the stage about honesty, whether you change your mind or not later, that trust that's built in the honesty is the health of the relationship, right? That's, you know, you can trust each other, you feel loved and cared about, and you can talk about almost anything.
2: Sally tweets to where we live. I'm 68. No kids. No regrets. Very little pressure. Uh, we're glad to hear uh, that, Sally. You know, I'm curious, uh, Julie, uh, when you're again meeting with uh, your clients, what happens when couples are on the same page about this, but then there's an accidental pregnancy?
6: Right, and that's more common than. Oh, I guess I have a skew, uh, Again, a skewed sample, but it obviously becomes a crisis at first because all kinds of decision-making that wasn't on the table, whether to terminate or to pursue the pregnancy, become very critical very fast. And so if the couple can kind of often they're working with us, obviously, with our our clinicians over here, but to try to figure out a way to stay connected to each other as they figure out something that feels impossible, you know, being creative and flexible in the problem-solving and not blaming each other, when it sort of feels like a betrayal or something terrible that's happening, will determine whether the couple can proceed in, in their relationship or not. When it turns into kind of um, blaming or stonewalling or being uh, stopping your care for your partner, then, then we know we're seeing some signs that the, the couple may not thrive.
2: And when we look at uh, outside pressures, outside pressures from mom and dad, uh, how do yeah. you counsel people about uh, the best way to bring it up uh, to um, their parents who may not be grandparents, even though they want to be?
6: Right. And it is people do come to family therapy for this reason alone, and whether it's children or the decisions they want, other decisions they want to make in their lives, because there is so much pressure from outside sources saying who you should be and who you shouldn't be. And really, that's about them, right? They they want a grandchild or they want you to work on the Northeast Coast or whatever because they are managing their own anxiety. So how we work with, with couples or individuals who want to talk to their families about this is to kind of focus on your own wellness, right? You have to learn how to set boundaries and handle other people's anxiety when your decision is different than what they want in their lives. It is not easy. I'm, I, It's a very simple statement for something that can feel um, really complicated when you love and care about those people who want something from you. But in truth, it ultimately, it's your sort of life alone or your couplehood alone, and you've got to kind of differentiate from your family of origin or families of origin.
2: Uh, we're hearing from another listener uh, who writes. A friend told me once that she does not trust people who don't want children. Oh uh, that's a reaction. It's it's that's out there. Even though we, we should only pay attention to the people that we love and and, their, and, and work through um, um, their perceptions. But you know, people do have uh, firm uh, opinions. And, and how do you block that out?
6: Right. Um, so, to me, that kind of addressing that to me. Um, Well, when we think about the idea, I like to um, talk to those pressuring people to say things like, it does not make sense to pressure somebody who does not want to have a child to be a caregiver, to have children. That doesn't make sense. You know, if you walk out their logic, stay in the discussion with them, because it can get highly reactive, right, when people have these kind of views. But if you were saying that to me, for example, I would get really curious Mm -hmm. about why you thought it would be a good idea for me who wanted to remain childless to become a parent. You know, you wouldn't tell me to become a um, neuroscientist, for example, if I really was not interested in that. But when we come to something as complicated as child rearing, we make assumptions and make simplistic decisions about that when it's a, a kind of a lifetime decision and so complex and would have direct influence on the child as well right if i don't want you as my offspring that has serious consequences growing up in that environment right so that that, those are my thoughts on that that's
2: Julie Leifeld, again, Associate Professor of Marriage and Family Therapy at Southern Connecticut State University. I wanted to close with a quote from author Elaine Tyler May. She wrote the book, Barren in the Promised Land, Childless Americans in the Pursuit of Happiness. She writes, there are many ways to have children in one's life without giving birth to them or raising them. Just ask any devoted aunt, teacher, doctor, child care worker, anyone with children in their lives. As one teacher said proudly, I'm not childless. I have 400 children. Again, that's Al- Elaine Tyler May. Also, want to thank Kristen Richter for joining us and telling us your story. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. As always, thanks for listening.